Welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions, brought to you by Corporate Diplomat. With our guests, we will discuss how the financial, economic, political and social context can actually impact the value created by a transaction. My name is Louis de Schallemer, and I will be your host. Selina Elwell, welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast dedicated to communications in mergers and acquisitions. Selina, you're one of the few grandes dames of the city. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. You have a degree in English from Oxford University and a degree of law from Sorbonne in Paris. And you started your career in New York. So what has made it that you have become the lady who you are today? <laughs> uh, one small point of precision, as it were. My law degree comes from the University of Paris 2, which was the awful, unfashionable word these days, but elite law school in Paris at the time. And actually, my first job was in, was in the city of London. And it's interesting that your company is called Diplomacy, because my mother was a diplomat. She was the really grand dame of the foreign office of ambassadorial rank with four children and a husband. And that was very unusual in those days. And I'm thinking of her today because her first great mission was to restore the UK's reputation in the Middle East after Suez. So that's quite topical today. But anyway, I always wanted to do something international. So I started life in what was then the International Investment Bank in the city. And I very quickly realized that actually what I wanted to do was not transactions and deals. I was not really very commercially oriented. I wanted to be someone that gave people advice. And I think the big difference between doing deals and giving people advice is that when you give people advice, the kind of person you are is terribly, terribly important. The fiduciary responsibility is very, very intense when you're giving people advice about what they should do with their money. Uh, when you're doing deals and transactions, it's a different mentality and a different set of skills. I think that what got me where I was was a combination of conviction around not only what you do, but how you do it. And also, I always wanted to be financially independent. It was one of the questions I put down for later, but I'm bringing it up now. So are you an entrepreneur or are you a banker? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm. I mean, old-fashioned banking, particularly merchant banking, was about financing entrepreneurs. It was about taking risk. And, and if you go back to the very origins of banking, which was, for instance, to enable trade, If you think about somebody sending a barrel of cognac from Bordeaux to India, it could take five months to get there and might not arrive because the boat might not sink, might sink. What bankers did was to discount a bill of trade, provide liquidity, and make that kind of entrepreneurship possible. So I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think that the problem with banking since the numerous crises that we've had is that it's become less and less of a risk taker, much more of a public service in some ways. But if you think that the interest rate that is charged to small businesses and indeed individuals who need credit compared to what they charge in you know, governments or, or big institutions, 
the disparity is so in, intense that I, I think it's that banking has become much less entrepreneurial than it was at its origins. Mm-hmm. If we look at today's stock market indexes that are pretty close to record highs overall, the interest rates that you just mentioned are record low <laughs> for mm-hmm. a long period. We have seen deal values and volumes increase by the second half of, of last year, of 2020, particularly in the technology and digital space. Where do you see things going right now? What is, what is your assessment of the current economic environment? Well, I think it's very difficult because, first of all, you know, most economic forecasts end up being wrong. Mm. <laughs> and certainly wrong as far as timing is concerned. I think the problem really now is that, you know, you'll talk about banking and entrepreneurship, and that is that fundamentals, old-fashioned fundamentals that relate to the price you pay for a share and the return you might get in terms of earnings have become irrelevant because what we're seeing is uh, the, you know, a vast amount of money swimming, swimming around from different sources, including banks, of course. and. Therefore, there's an imbalance between the supply money out there and the demand from businesses that are really capable of fulfilling old-fashioned and nonetheless very, I think, sound valuation criteria. I mean, we've never had a period, from an investment management perspective, we've never had a period where growth has outperformed value, growth being you know, buying shares on the basis that they will grow and very often the absence of any type of earnings now, so you could call that very speculative. And value, where you look at a company's balance sheet and its cash flow and decide whether or not buying into it at a certain price is sensible or not. The Deloitte published last year a survey of a thousand CEOs, and they said, among others, that the interest in international deal-making was declining. This was based on an interview of U.S. CEOs. Do you see something similar happening, or has that what they expected six months ago? How do you see that today? Well, we have a phrase in my world which is called home bias. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I think, about investor behavior is how much of it is driven by purely behavioral instincts. People buy what they're familiar with. What we call diversification is very often just duplication. And you see that particularly in the US. I don't really know what it's attributable to, but one has to remember, that for, I mean, first of all, the US is a huge country. Secondly, it is a huge market. It has a very, very, very powerful, I would say, retail investor behavioral element. And a lot of those retail investors just don't believe in international investing. I mean, they may be right or they may be wrong. We used to say in my day, that if America sneezes, everybody else catches a cold. That was my first thing said to me when I walked into the city of London. Remember, Selena, that actually the only thing that really matters is what goes on in the US. And although in my advisory work, I try to encourage US investors to look at emerging markets where the disparity in the valuations is so huge, they tend genuinely to believe that actually they don't need to go abroad. So... I think there are two aspects to that. One is a lot of the capital that is available for acquisitions is in the US to the extent that there are these SPACs. I think they're called SPACs or SPICs, which are special purpose investment companies, which are listed on the stock exchange without any obvious just to buy something. I mean, that takes the whole 
business of mergers and acquisitions to some absurd degree of, you know, just go out and buy anything, raising money to buy something. I mean, that seems to me to be pretty weird. But it is, again, symptomatic of uh, a certain potentially end-of-cycle behavior by investors. It's a sort of financial arrogance, could it be? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say arrogance, because that has sort of kind of, but I mean, stupidity, I think, is more likely. <laughs> I mean, if you think about what normally drives stock market, we call them corrections. Other people call them crashes. You know, if you go back to tulip mania, it's usually an excess of investors and people who raise capital. And obviously, to some extent, the mergers and acquisitions industry getting into a fever of transactions, which of course generates fees. Some of the companies genuinely need capital, particularly tech companies and biotech, they do need a huge amount of capital. But when that goes into sort of exponential, you know, raising money and we'll buy anything that we think we should buy without real sort of strategy behind it and a strategy that goes beyond simply buying something at $5 a share and selling it at 10 you know, what we used to call flipping, which is clearly not value accretive to anybody other than the person owning the shares. In today's world where we have, especially here in Europe, many of the baby boomer generation that where the companies come to maturity now after their 40 years kind of building up and setting it up, the next generation is not necessarily always educated, willing, keen to take over. So there is a huge number of, of mid-sized family businesses around there. How do you see that evolution? What would be an opportunity there? An opportunity for the company owners or for... Yes, for the seller or for the buyer. <laughs> right. Well, I'm a great believer in family businesses. I'm a great believer in, in having as short as possible connection between the consumer, the customer that is, the people who work in the company and the people who own the company. I think the longer and the more involved that distance becomes, the more problems you run into as far as motivation is concerned, as far as, I mean, you know, the great buzzword these days is ESG. Mm. My great-grandfather founded a company where he made what we call edge tools, spades, forks, axes, in the good old, grand old English tradition of the black country, steel forged steel, but he founded schools and he provided healthcare and he was actually commended by a parliamentary committee of his day for the way that he looked after his workers. Now, on one hand, you could say that that was some kind of philanthropic motivation. I don't think it was. I think he thought a good owner, for him, his labor force is an absolutely crucial asset and it makes good sense to look after them. And I don't know, in those days, you, people didn't necessarily think about where they got things from on an ESG basis, but certainly quality, quality, giving people pride in what they do is partly a matter, very largely a matter, principally a matter of taking home money to put food on you and your loved one's table. But it's also a sense of recognition and all of those things which go beyond purely and simply, you know, what your bonus is and you know, this sense of loyalty to a company. And I think that's very difficult in a climate where, and I mean, families do help that because families establish culture, families have got tradition, families, hopefully the next generation has less of an, a sense of entitlement and more of a sense of responsibility. You have taken this approach yourself as well. You're committed to education, entrepreneurial women. 
Is that right? I, I'm committed in a small way. I think that the one thing that really, really I would love to change and should be changed is education for women in emerging countries. You know, particularly, it's not only actually in these emerging countries, it happens here too. But the systematic domestic abuse of women by their fathers, by their sisters, by their brothers, by their in-laws, in my view, can only be changed by the education of the women because the women educate their sons. And if you can empower women not only to provide a more enlightened approach to their sons, particularly about how they treat the female sex, but also give them financial independence so that they can decide you know, how to spend their money, possibly on their children's education, possibly, if necessary, on leaving if they're being beaten up by their husband. And so I think it's it's a much under-championed cause, but it's the thing that, I, and I, you know, I, I mean, nobody's ever beaten me up, <laughs> but both my parents were public servants and they didn't get huge bonuses and they struggled financially with four children. And I, it's one of the reasons why I'm not a public servant. But I think I was brought up with that concept of service and of having a larger cause that I want to be a part of. And facilitating trade is terribly, terribly important. And that's why I chose what in those days was merchant banking, because it facilitates trade. And if you can have global trade, that is a way for people to get to know each other and understand each other and respect each other. Nobody makes friends because a politician tells them to do that. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned education as part of empowerment, of a source of building a, a better world. In transactions, in trade, how important is know-how? Okay, we can say, yeah, you call the lawyers and you put it as to IP, but many companies have a real know-how. You, you mentioned your great-grandfather who was doing knives and forks, but he knew how to do things and didn't have an ISO standard to produce a certain number of things. And it is a pity that all of our processes become standardized because it takes away the artisan and the creativity mm. and the innovation. How do you see the transfer of knowledge in a transaction? Because you're taking in people who know how to do things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all, I mean, the trouble is it depends whether one's talking about the transaction purely as a transaction, mm. where a lot of the professionals involved get paid huge fees and they only really want what they want to do is to do the deal. Um, and in many cases, the management team coming in, they're not necessarily terribly interested in finding out what know-hows within the company. Depends why they bought the company. But clearly, there's a struggle between the management company coming in and the incumbent management team. I was just talking to a friend of mine who is a biotechnologist. It's a UK company. They've developed this extraordinary very exciting biotechnology-based, and they're a group of scientists, and now they're being bought by a U.S. company, and they're wondering what's going to happen, because yes, they need the capital to develop, manufacture, promote, distribute their product, but obviously, once you have outside shareholders, I mean, that's why this American company is buying this company, is they're buying it for the know-how. Will they be enlightened enough to have structures in place, which means that the know-how is nurtured, or will they institute various sort of metrics and criteria which are not conducive to that? All too often, one sees the latter rather than the former. You mentioned that most of the transactions have extraordinary legal, financial, strategic advice and 
that is all covered. What is your piece of advice in, in a transaction? How do you complement the procedural due diligence and whatever? What is your thinking? How do you define a success? How do you make a, a transaction a success? Well, I mean, I personally, I'm not involved in transactions anymore. That's something I did in the past. And I think it's very important that people who give people advice on what to do with their money understand that side of things. Mm. And I suppose, you know, there are different different points of view. I mean, obviously, one wants two and two to make five. <laughs> Companies need to be efficient. They need to be profitable within reason. They need to pay dividends. They need to think about shareholders. But I think one of you, you know, one of your earlier questions about families is that they have a long-term perspective. You know, it's terribly important that you invest in the business. I mean, too often we see, I mean, the, the old-fashioned word was asset stripping. You know, companies buying a transactions happening in order to eliminate, you know, know-how in the acquiree. For me, a successful transaction obviously is where two and two makes five along various dimensions where a company becomes a bigger company and therefore it's got more resources. It can invest in its product and in its people. And it's, I mean, I don't really believe in many, 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 many years ago, I got a job in France because the socialist government in France had decided that all companies needed to allocate 1% of their turnover to the education of their staff. But of course, as all of these subsidies, they're not policed. So a lot of the money went on gliding courses or wine tasting courses and we all know what that really meant i went to teach english but for a large number of people i, I taught english to that was completely irrelevant to them because they were basically picking the grapes so they didn't need to learn english and so they weren't really interested and it was a waste of money and one percent of your turnover to invest in your company's education that is imposed by the government you know is not necessarily terribly useful but i think that all companies do really need to think about what they're doing for their people, not just in terms of what they pay them, but in terms of what opportunities they give them to develop their knowledge and know-how. But that's part of a long-term investment. Mm. What is the role of leadership in the transaction? So you just mentioned, okay, the addition has to be two and two has to be five. There is a culture, you mentioned family businesses, but how can leadership make transaction a success? Well, I think the most important thing and the most common mistake that one sees um, in terms of negligence, for want of a better word, or omission, is bringing your people with you. I mean, increasingly nowadays, you know, technology can be duplicated. Technology can be substituted. Technology can be copied. But what you can't do really is clone your people overnight. And all change, all change is uncomfortable. We all know that in every aspect of our lives and motivating change, particularly when you sometimes don't understand why, is a matter of trust, it's a matter of confidence. It's a complex thing and there is no substitute for whatever one means by good leadership. And really good leadership nowadays means listening more than talking. I mean, too often now I think it's become a sort of PR thing, you know, and endless communication goes on, usually managed by professionals. But. There isn't any substitute for really knowing your people and spending time with your people and listening to them, responding to them. I think the trust factor is something that we have seen quite often. Indeed, communications, as it very often is brought forward, is basically, yes, write the press release that A buys B and whatever, it becomes C or the new thing. Not just diplomacy, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> 
or maybe it is just diplomacy, but I think, you know, you've chosen the name for your company, but it's kind of what is behind the diplomacy. Yes, it is this trust building. It is this connections building because just the face value of a press release is not worth it if you cannot really make this, this connection. The diplomacy is what we said is keeping up doors open in good and bad times because what do diplomats do? They um, protect or defend the interests so that trade can go on. <laughs> yeah. So that's the work. So that's what we call today in our business, business continuity. So we make sure there is business continuity because there is change. So you can help people in the transition. That is what we're looking after. And it's an interesting one. Well, I think that you know, the connections, it's, it's so incredibly important. I mean, one of the things that has been really disappointing in many ways about this whole COVID situation we've lived through is that it seems to have exacerbated prejudice, open-mindedness. And, you know, if you take, for instance, the whole concept of getting to know people and understanding that whatever you read in the press and whatever their beliefs is that ultimately they're people. And if only one can find a common ground and the pretext for finding that common ground is very often mutual or reciprocal economic dependence. And that is a very long grand word for trade. <laughs> <laughs> I um, do ask my guests if they have one good advice that they can share for M&A, for transactions, or something that they have experienced, something that they have seen somebody else do, where you say, oh, that's interesting. What would be your one advice if you were to give one? Well, I think it really is to address the people aspect. Mm -hmm. Really think about what you're trying to achieve at the people level. I think it's too often neglected. And it's not just a matter of thinking who are your key people and you've got to make sure that they don't leave and give them lots of money. But it's, it's a much overused word, but there is something around culture. And, you know, you very often in, you know, acquisitions, you see technology operations and all of these things, but really getting to grips with what the stakeholders in terms of the people really need to feel is accretive of value, I, I think is just a much often neglected aspect. If my search was good enough, you have written one or the other pieces of article or books. What would be the next book you would want to write? <laughs> <laughs> or are you writing one now? Well, I think, it's, yes, absolutely. It's a book about about people behaving well in trying circumstances. <laughs> and I would say understated, understated female leadership. I think that the courage of women that is so often, you know, I mean, not that I'm really a feminist, but it's something that very often goes unrecognized. And the moral leadership starts with mothers and sisters and, and actually also in, in business. I think that women have a responsibility beyond men because I think we can really, really make a difference. And so my book is really about women behaving particularly well in a man's world. <laughs> you definitely have been one of the few ladies at the top in a financial environment. So you have seen an, a significant evolution over the last couple of years. Would you say that it's easier for women today or has it become even more complicated well, I think, no, I think it is much, 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 much easier. I have to say that I've never encountered any prejudice in my world. I mean, maybe I was just too naive to notice it. 
but life is competition. And I don't think that women are disadvantaged. They may get paid less. They may want to work less. Many women do want to work less and they want to have flexible hours. So I don't think there is, I don't see prejudice per se around me. And I think women have to be a bit careful about, again, this kind of sense of entitlement and, you know, playing the I'm a woman card. I don't think that does any good to anybody very much. If I was to make a generalization, I would say that the people who have been least helpful to me have been other women. And if I was to make another generalization to the extent that I, and I don't think that I'm in any way sort of gender aware, but I do inevitably end up spending more of my time encouraging women in support roles, which they're very good at, to aspire to leadership roles, to have the confidence to take on more responsibility because they very often just need to have the confidence. They need to know that they can do it, that they can fit in their domestic lives around it, that they can do it. And they often perhaps need a bit more encouragement than their male peer group. That's a beautiful picture, Louis, behind you. Well, as you're talking about women, that is my great-grandmother who painted that one. Really? Lovely picture. <laughs> it is my great-grandmother. So I do have a, a female inspiration in front of my desk. Uh... Extremely accomplished. <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting, the word accomplished, you know, in Jane Austen's day, the word accomplishment for women meant being able to draw and paint and sew and read and you know, recite poetry. And that sense of accomplishment has now moved on, obviously, to different sets of skills. Mm. But educating women to have those accomplishments in itself is not new. No, and she definitely, my great-grandmother, I'm still benefiting from, from the work that she has done. So if I sit there where I sit, she has been uh, pivotal in that one. And she had just one daughter. So, you know... We have seen great women in our family. That's good. Good. <laughs> Selina, I think um, I think we have uh, covered really interesting topics. I love the word of behavioral instincts. I loved your focus on the risk taking. But what I really felt, and that is probably due to your diplomatic background, <laughs> is the interest for trade. That's where you started with. <laughs> I think that is fundamental. I do think that's why I believe in all of the structures. And, and, you know, and mergers and acquisitions can be one of them, can be, that facilitates this cross-border fertilization between people, between cultures, between religions. And I think it's trade that accomplishes that because ultimately that is what helps, provides the wheels, the networks to balance ignorance and prejudice with personal knowledge and experience. And certainly from a professional point of view, I've always tried to facilitate that. Call it diversity, call it what you like, but it is a real sense of inclusiveness. And I think that that has to have a commercial motivation as well as a philosophical one. And thank you for asking me. Thank you for asking me to contribute a personal perspective. <laughs> it's been fun. Celia, I think that was a beautiful conclusion. I couldn't have said that better. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Diplomacy. Please explore our website, www.corporate-diplomat.com or our LinkedIn page. I hope you have enjoyed. Feel free to subscribe and hit the follow button. Have a great day.